This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 16th, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 321 of Defender Radio. Cull is a four-letter word, and that double meaning is finally becoming more clear. For years, governments and consumptive wildlife users have argued that culls are necessary, be it for protecting game species, habitat, or to encourage a specific type of behavior from hunters and trappers. But science, advocates, and, it seems, even some government reports indicate that these culls are so ineffective that in some cases their effect is a complete 180 from the intended result. This week, Defender Radio connected with two people who have interesting things to say about culls. First, we'll hear from Dr. Adrian Travis of the Carnivore Coexistence Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, whose recent study has revealed that, in his test area, a cull initiated to reduce poaching of wolves actually increased the illegal hunting. We'll also hear from Krista Rosing of Pacific Wild, one of the groups responsible for a court action against the British Columbia government's culling of wolves to allegedly protect endangered mountain caribou herds and the shocking revelations that came as a result of the court case. Let's get started with Dr. Adrian Travis. What was, what was the impetus for looking at this data? What, what was the original purpose? The government uh, argued in court that culling would reduce poaching. They then contracted my lab to test that hypothesis in 2010. And clearly the results were, were not what they were looking for. Uh, what did you find by going through this data set? We found uh, that it was much more likely that culling would increase poaching. And how do you determine something like that? Because there, it, it seems to me, and as a layperson, that there are so many variables when you look at population uh, that it would be difficult to really determine singular causes. So how did you narrow it down to human uh, interference on population levels? So there's only three possible explanations for the slowdown in wolf population growth that we saw in both the states of Wisconsin and Michigan. The three possible explanations are that uh, wolves left those two states, namely migration, we rejected that possibility because the correlation with the policy signal, that is the announcement um, of the culling authority or with delisting, those policy signals, there's no known biological mechanism. It's simply inconceivable that wolves would leave the state when a policy was announced. The second possibility is a much more plausible explanation, which is density dependence a phenomenon that's fairly common in many wildlife, where as the population becomes more abundant and densely populated, its growth slowed, slows. And we therefore tested for that very carefully, but we found the opposite, as have researchers uh, for the Wisconsin wolf population. Namely, we found that the proportion of packs breeding every year increased as the population uh, became more dense. We looked at other elements of density dependence, but likewise, they did not explain it. If anything, they should have, we should have found an increase in population growth rate. 
So our estimates probably underestimate. The third explanation, the only other one, which is that wolves died unreported. Now, we have other evidence here. Uh, very few mortality sources destroy radio collars. So some of the wolves in these two states were radio collared, and their radio collars disappeared. Uh, poaching is the pretty much the only source of mortality that can consistently destroy radio collars and lead to the disappearance of wolf carcasses. That was our primary bit of evidence. Secondly, we needed a source of mortality that was new and could respond to a policy signal. And as mentioned earlier, the policy signal was the declaration of authority for culling and the length of time that authority was in place independent of the number of wolves culled. So poachers can potentially respond to a policy signal. And finally, we had corroborating evidence from attitudinal research that we've been doing repeatedly for the last uh, 15 years here in Wisconsin, showing that tolerance for wolves and inclination to poach wolves had been changing over the time period indicated, namely that inclination to poach wolves had increased over time despite culling being in place, and that tolerance for wolves had declined. And they've continued to decline even after the public hunting and trapping season in 2012. But that's uh, that's not considered in the current paper. So we have these corroborating sources of evidence that suggest a new cause of mortality had appeared, that it responded to a policy signal, that it destroys radio collars. And we know from studies of other populations that unreported poaching is a significant, some, usually the most significant source of mortality for large carnivores. Therefore, we inferred that the slowdown in population growth we measured was caused by a surge in poaching triggered by the length of time the government had authority to cull wolves, but independent of the implementation, namely independent of the number of wolves killed in culling operations. Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating to hear how you've been able to determine this. Uh, and it's enjoyable for me. My background is journalism, so it's kind of a uh, uh, sort of a detective novel version of science almost um, that we don't often get to see happen. Um, yeah. And I... I as a scientist then, and I'm asking this again as a layperson and someone who, who advocates for, for predators and for other wildlife, um, I I see this almost as confirmation of what has been suspected or talked about in hushed voices. The three S's, shoot, shovel, and shut up, as I'm sure you've probably heard over the years. Yeah. Um, and it's never before really been factored into policy when we look at wildlife management, specifically of predators. It's always these are the, like this is the number we have, and this is the number we want to get rid of. So, how can this now move forward in policy? Is this something that can be replicated, sort of across the board for wolves or for other species? Yeah, you're absolutely on the mark. Uh, poaching has been. Uh, either talked about very obliquely and very little done about it or ignored. And uh, therefore, we're recommending that uh, government agencies focus much more deliberate effort on enforcing anti-poaching rules and being prudent trustees of a public asset, namely wildlife. Um, and in this case, a prudent trustee accounts for all uses of the asset, including illegal uses and um, also attempts to preserve that asset for the public benefit, not for narrow interest groups, and especially not for illegal hunters like poachers. In terms of how this may, uh, it, like, is there, 
just trying to think of how to phrase this appropriately. Is there a a model that can be evolved from the basis of your study and the, the body of evidence currently available to indicate percentage even uh, or a guesstimate in highly scientific terms of um, what level of wildlife populations is lost to poaching? Or is it something that's uh, like most other population management always going to be in flux? Well, yeah. Okay. So the answer is yes and somewhat. So yes, the, um, these results should spur more research to estimate how much poaching is going on. But yes, the, uh, you're right that the numbers, the values are going to fluctuate over time in the same populations and be different in different populations. So um, we cite a study in the reference list to our article by Olaf Lieberg. The last name is spelled L-I-B-E-R-G, which is um, probably the best, most sophisticated effort to quantify poaching for wolves in Scandinavia. And they discovered, by the way, that uh, 51% of all mortality was due to poaching and two-thirds of that mortality was unreported. Coming out this year, um, out of my lab, uh, another paper quantifying poaching slightly less precisely than Lyberg and doing it for Wisconsin. So these efforts are underway. You're going to see a lot of attention in the coming months and years to poaching, both trying to measure it better and I think trying to enforce against it. Um, I'd ask you actually to follow up with me in about four or five months' time when we show a method for quantifying poaching under circumstances that are more typical than Scandinavia. The reason I say that is uh, Lyberg et al. were able to take advantage of how Scandinavia is a closed population. Wolves cannot immigrate or emigrate at significant rates. In fact, only three appear to have ever successfully immigrated into Scandinavia. So they took advantage of that closed population to determine what happened to missing wolves. In about six months' time or four to six months' time, we'll be publishing a paper that is going to be more generally useful for most other wolf populations that are not closed in that way. Outstanding. It sounds like Donald Trump should visit Scandinavia to pick up some tips. Um, <laughs> now, what the, the last thing I want to ask you, and this is less science, well, it's still scientific, it's less precise, is in Canada, when we're looking at a lot of these issues with our own policy, um, we have found, and many scientists are citing, that our population estimates or the models on which population estimates are built are inaccurate. Now, I know in Wisconsin uh, and throughout the upper Midwest of the United States, uh, depredation is a massive issue, both politically and economically. So there's a lot of resources devoted to these types of studies, uh, comparably to Canada, I should point out. Um, I'm sure in your position you would say it's the it's not that heavy. But um, how... like. Is there a way to try and indicate um, that anything we do is going to be futile unless we start investing in more true uh, population studies? I'm not familiar with how Canadian provinces count their wolves. Sorry. So um, I'd have to only speak to my region, which uh, used to do a good job of it before 2013, Wisconsin did. Uh, Michigan is still doing a good job of counting its wolves. Those population counts are useful, but they don't actually shed all that much light on conflicts with people. And um, contrary to the political rhetoric, 
conflicts with people from large carnivores are, are a minor, minor local issue compared to other losses of livestock from disease, weather, and accidents. Um, other wildlife are much more damaging, like white-tailed deer, to crops and to vehicles uh, through collisions. So the problem posed for livestock production is trivial on a regional basis, although it, of course, can affect a certain individual farm rather heavily. Um, but the evidence supports that non-lethal methods are going to prevent those losses better than lethal methods. And I guess finally, what do you hope to see now? Uh, again, sort of as a scientist, as an educator, you have seen uh, a lot over over the years in terms of predator management. Uh, what are you hoping will happen next in terms of research and policy as it relates to wildlife, man uh, to sorry, predators in uh, wildlife populations? Yeah, we're looking forward to a policy that's based on evidence, not presumptions and uh, stories that are repeated often without basis. So there's a, a partnership between government and science and the scient independent scientific community that needs to be cemented so that policy is based not on anecdote and superstition and myth, but on uh, hard evidence. And so in this case, we believe that the management of large carnivores needs to enter the 21st century, being evidence-based and uh, not driven by narrow interest groups, but by the broad public interest. To learn more about Dr. Travis's work or see his most recent studies, visit faculty.nelson.wise.edu slash Travis. And yes, that link is available on this week's blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more on culls. Pacific Wild, along with the Valhalla Wilderness Society, last year initiated court action to prevent the government-sanctioned wolf cull from moving forward in British Columbia. The government claimed the cull was necessary to protect endangered mountain caribou herds, something that scientists and advocates alike have strongly rejected. Now, documents revealed during the court process have shown the shocking truth lurking inside the government's decision. We heard more from Krista Rosing of Pacific Wild. 
we'll start at the beginning. Uh, this this is a lengthy story, so to speak. Um, so Pacific Wild and Valhalla Wilderness petitioned for a judicial review of the experimental wolf cult in the South Peace region of British Columbia. So can we start, I guess, before we get into the legal part of that, what the government's reasoning was not not the validity of the reasoning but the reasoning itself what they stated the reason for doing this experimental wolf call in the south peace region was uh well they they're doing it in the south peace and in another region called the south selkirks which is further south in bc close to the u.s border um so this is mountain caribou habitat and uh mountain caribou in bc are not doing well they've been declining for decades um, and the province is saying that uh, the wolf cull is part of a multi-pronged a- approach to um, trying to preserve the, those ca- uh, mountain caribou populations that are no longer self-sustaining. They're um, really small populations. They don't have uh, much of a chance at this point of, of surviving. Um, some of them are as low as 18 in number. And um, the government acknowledges that um, the caribou habitat that's, that remains, especially in the South Peace, is so fragmented and so much of it has been destroyed by industrial activity um, that there isn't enough intact habitat left for caribou uh, to survive, to have separation, spatial separation from uh, predators as they as they used to have um, historically. Okay, and I I don't know if this I, this to me I, I was talking about someone uh, with this kind of stuff the other day who's uh, uh, doing their masters in bioethics of all things, um, and we were talking about uh, biological imperatives. Is this a situation? And this may be way out of the ballpark on what we're talking about today, but. When we look at this issue, the way it was kind of put to me when I was first told about it a few years ago, uh, when the the experimental coals and everything first came up, um, was that the ecosystem can and will survive without these mountain caribou, but it won't survive without the wolves. And we would have to drastically change everything to save these caribou. But the only thing really being done is the wolf cull. So is it almost a situation of the government saying we need to do something and just coming up with a plan? Or is there like a, a philosophical, we've got to make an effort as remote as it may be? But it seems to me kind of in that ethical realm of wildlife management and environmental management to be kind of a big question mark that you're almost damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, unfortunately, I think when it comes to the province's decision, it has a lot more to do with economics than ethics. Um, I, there's pressure from industry to allow continued industrial activity in caribou habitat. And uh, they've had a, uh, you know, there's a report from 2012, which is three years before they began the call, saying that the only way um, you could continue to destroy caribou habitat and have a chance of um, of those populations not being completely extirpated is by uh, removing predation. Um, and the reason that wolves are targeted with this aerial cull is that they don't have any value for trophy hunting. 
So bears and cougars, um, they've recently upped the or attempted to triple the number of um, licenses for trophy hunting of grizzly bears in caribou habitat. Uh, so they don't kill them from helicopters because they they have they have economic value as a a trophy species. So um, I think what it comes down to is uh, more about how to appease industry, carry on with business as usual, um, and sh- uh, make an appearance of doing something to protect caribou without actually addressing underlying causes. Um, it's also uh, that part of BC, uh, there's a lot of ranching. Um, there's uh, There are a lot of um, people that are involved in the natural gas industry. Um, and so there's kind of... Uh, Unlike here on the coast, where there's a long-standing um, respect for wolves among the First Nations here, uh, who've lived alongside them for 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 since time immemorial um, in their traditions in in the Northeast, it's different. The um, First Nations there have a different attitudes towards wolves, and so do um, so do the ranchers and a lot of the settlers there. So there isn't uh an animal welfare advocacy organization there that's um that's working to protect these the wolves there so it's it's kind of a different culture um where it's uh it's easy to scapegoat wolves basically mm-hmm. well and that's it, it's very frustrating for for a number of reasons obviously i'm you know i'm upset by this this ongoing policy, but it, it's also frustrating because I spent a lot of time and a lot of money on whiskey trying to figure out the philosophical attitude they might be taking, and you just kind of wipe it out with, it's about the economy. And it really does seem to be that simple in the big picture, that there there is no sound wildlife management, there is no ethical or, or, or uh, a moral stance to make this okay. It's simply about the money. And how how do we convey that to people? And and frankly, how do we convey to them that being about the money, especially now when money is becoming more and more of an issue for people uh, finding jobs, you know, how how do we say, well, guess what? It, it can't always be about the money. Yeah, I I think. Well, I think the government's really trying to put up a smokescreen with this with this cull by saying, well, we're we're acting to protect these caribou and we can have development and caribou and we're protecting all this land for caribou that's supposed to be critical habitat. Well, they they won't show anyone uh where that land is and officially what protection is given to that land for mountain caribou. Um so uh I think it's important to just um, uh, continue with the message that um, you, you can't have both. Like in, in BC, the the government is very proud of their record of protecting somewhere between 12 and 14 percent of the provincial land base in parks. Um, but if you're a wide-ranging animal uh, that has specific habitat requirements um, to survive, you you're not going to be able to survive in the remaining uh, 86% of the province that's that's allowed to be destroyed or altered or um, denigrated or um, fragmented. And so uh, I, I think we have to 
come to a new realization that um, if we want these animals, if we want grizzly bears, if we want uh, a whole number of species that are now threatened or endangered um, because we've only given them these tiny little parcels to survive in, that we are going to have to reconcile that with um, the way we treat the land and the way we exploit the land for economic development. Um now, in terms of the, the news release you've sent out today, uh, Monday, which I, I read, again, with that very strange mix of emotion personally, because part of me feels that the, you know, the news angle is exciting. Part of me says, you know, you've really justified a lot of the fight that's been going on lately in what you've found. And part of me is just utterly devastated and I feel uh, empty inside almost from the fact that this has been going on. And it's largely about four four items that came out of an affidavit from the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resources. Uh, and you already uh, acknowledged one, which was uh, no, uh, acknowledging that there is no longer sufficient intact caribou habitat to maintain spatial separations from wolves in the South Peace. Uh, and the other three are admitting mountain caribou predation is largely a result of extensive habitat alterations arising from cumulative industrial and natural disturbances, conceding that caribou are not the main prey of wolves, but wolves may incidentally kill caribou, and claiming that wolves cause less than half of car caribou mortality in the South Peace. Now, these are things the government has publicly been denying uh, um, extensively by with, with the, the comments they've made about uh, uh, habitat protection, all the things you've already said, frankly, that, you know, they're protecting habitat but not telling anyone which habitat that they're you know, going to do all of these different kinds of protections, but they're not showing them. And there's even evidence that they are doing exploration in areas they've previously said are protected. So uh, from someone who's been sort of following this and, and running parts of it, how do you respond to see, like, is it the same for you, that very strange mix, seeing the, those four major components come out of this affidavit? Well, I think what that speaks to is that affidavit came from the regional manager who was responsible, ostensibly responsible for making the decision to call wolves. Um, but I think that that decision really came from higher up. I think it came from the ministry. And the, that regional manager who made that decision and who's making these statements in his affidavit, he has really no control over how... Um, what goes on in caribou habitat. So he can make a decision to do with the animals and the wolves, um, with, the, with the caribou and the wolves, but um, all of the preceding decisions to do with land use that led to a cumulative impact of 68% of the South Peace region being uh, impacted by uh, industrial development, those were decisions that have been carried out over the last 30 years. And since 1988, or probably even sooner, there was science that was available to those decision makers um, showing that, the, that those land use changes would have negative impacts on caribou populations. So I think the structure of our government is that we have a Ministry of Environment that's supposed to protect species at risk. Um, and all wildlife for that matter, and, and habitat. And then we have these other ministries that are responsible for industrial development and, and land use planning. And the Ministry of Environment just has no teeth. They've got no backbone and no teeth. Um, and uh, 
So because we don't have any endangered species legislation in BC, um, there's really no one to advocate for these species except for uh, groups like us. Yeah, so instead of there being a, uh, a, a very clear legal mandate, so if there were proper uh, legislation in place and you could say, okay, these caribou are endangered, that means you are out of their habitat, bottom line, and you've got to do things to encourage them and so on. Uh, whereas right now, they just kind of have a free hand to manage it as they wish. Well, they are, so mountain caribou are listed under the Species at Risk Act federally, but um, I, it, the way it looks is that the province just has to appear to be doing something to protect them. Um, the federal government has, I don't think, ever gone after a province for not uh, doing anything to protect a species at risk. Um, Which, of course, is a flaw in the system since technically yeah. wildlife falls under the jurisdiction of the provinces and the it's you know it's i think it's a worldwide problem realistically when you have multiple tiers of government um you do and and to me the problem also is that nothing ever gets done until these species are are listed and then and then it still takes you know decades or it'll take years as um you've seen west uh, wilderness committee has gone to court to um, try to get the government to come up with their um, recovery plans for species at risk in the province for several of them. I mean, it, it just it takes forever because they're they're at industry's whim basically, and so they're uh, they delay the process as much as possible. Um, and by that time, you know, with these caribou, these these populations are they could just as easily be wiped out by a bad winter or an avalanche or as one 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 herd fell down a mine shaft like uh, they're so small that um at this point that they're susceptible to all kind of stochastic events and um you know i personally i i am a fan of the idea of real rewilding um i think that we if we want to protect uh the natural world which humans are supposed to be a part of but uh if we want to protect function, functioning ecosystems with functioning self-sustaining populations of of wildlife then um we have to do more than just wait until they they're declining to the point where they get assessed and then they're on the list and then you know there's these years go by and still nothing really gets done i i think that we really have to start looking at putting aside vast areas um, for for wildlife. There is a note that the wolf call has ended and uh, Pacific Wild and Valhalla Wilderness Society have withdrawn their petition for a judicial review. Um, that, on the face of it, sounds like a bad thing. But could you explain why it's not necessarily a bad thing and it could actually lead to better things for, uh, for the animals? Um, well, basically... We had to withdraw because, as we kind of saw from the beginning, uh, but we we felt like we had to give it a chance, and we got funding to um, to hire a lawyer who also did a lot of the work pro bono. Um, but uh, the, unfortunately, these regional managers have a lot of discretion, and the court is likely to um, uphold that. So. Uh, Basically, this just allows us to um, redirect resources back into um, 
public awareness and and other efforts on the ground to try to stop the cull. And um, I think that that can be pretty effective considering we have a, an election coming up next year um, that our best bet is to really uh, to raise the profile of this issue before the call starts again next year. Um, I, we've, we've never, we, the response that we, that we've received from the public has just been overwhelming. We, when the, when we first um, put out a press release about the call, when we first found out about it, um, January, 2015, uh, we had no idea uh, that we would get the kind of response that we did that we had, we were on the phone for months with people calling just to, um, just to express their outrage, um, we were able to raise over seventy thousand dollars on Indiegogo within a month, um, which helped to fund uh, people on the ground that were trying to document the the call and um, bus shelter ads and a number of other efforts. So I think that's where we'll go back to is um, just trying to put more. Uh, more of our energy into raising public awareness and yeah and we were very happy to take part in some of the advocacy that uh, Pacific Wild was integral in and uh, we saw very similar results even people who ordinarily would give the government a little bit more wiggle room just said it doesn't make sense Uh, and I think if nothing else this entire process of the, the lawsuit really got the government to show uh, you know, sort of by, it's almost like a legal feint and you managed to get them to overextend. And again, these four key points you got out of that affidavit are extraordinarily telling, I think, and will play a big role in that next election when we talk about, you know, environmental protections and they say, well, this is what we're doing. And we'll say, well, look, this is what you said you were doing and this is what you actually were doing. Um, you know, I think anytime you can get them to show their hand in that regard, it ends up being helpful. Uh yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, we could have gone forward with the judicial review, but we we probably wouldn't have uh, got too much more information than we can get from 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 this response and from um, FOI requests. So, um, yeah, at this point, uh, it just seemed prudent to um, turn away from that and and uh, try to look forward to how we're going to. Um, influence the the next government, I guess. To read more about Pacific Wild's legal work and see the court documents yourself, visit pacificwild.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I want to thank my guests for spending so much of their time with us, and all of you for taking the time to listen. Until next week, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.